0: The Business of Caring is a groundbreaking new series within the Tell Me More podcast that's dedicated to exploring the synergies between compassionate patient care and business excellence. With her expertise as a highly celebrated internal medicine physician and founder of Christine Meyer MD and Associates, Dr. Meyer has built a thriving practice with over 20 providers, 20,000 patients, and growing. Her success is a direct result of putting incredible patient care first. And each episode of The Business of Caring explores the profound impact of prioritizing patient well being on overall practice success. For those that love our traditional Tell Me More podcast format, don't worry, it's not going anywhere. After all, amazing patient care starts with learning directly from patients by speaking with them and hearing their stories and we'll continue to deliver tell me more podcasts on a regular basis through this channel. It's all part of our unwavering effort to help healthcare professionals build trust with patients and improve health outcomes simply by having better conversations. And now, here's your host, Dr. Christine Meyer.
1: This is such a cool episode. As you all know, I talk a lot about patient conversations and how to make them better. But I also really love talking to my colleagues. I love talking to doctors, especially physician entrepreneurs. So in this segment, we're calling it the business of caring. And we're talking to people, doctors who have been really successful at Caring for patients. My guest today is no stranger to any of that. In fact, he is a very busy man. In a lot of ways, way busier than me. Uh, thankfully, he's a lot younger than me, so he can do it. It is Dr. Bradley Block, a practicing otolaryngologist from New York. Brad, welcome to the show.
2: Thank you so much for having me. And I'm I'm not that much younger than you. I'm actually about to turn. <laughs> 40, 44 in uh, less than a month. So, you know, I am, I am, I am tired. I am tired. I am doing
1: a lot and I
2: am tired. Yeah.
1: (laughs) That's fair. So you are, you're experienced, you're seasoned just like I am. I love that. So I, I have to ask you this question. When did we stop calling you guys auto rhino laryngologists and go to just auto laryngologists? Like my entire career, it was otorhinolaryngologist for the E-N-T, ear, nose, and throat. Was that just a thing because people got tired of it?
2: You know, for my entire career, so I started residency in 2006. uh, It's always been otolaryngology. Um, It might be because you're in Pennsylvania. Because I know it's Penn. (laughs) At Penn, which is Penn, it's um, otorhinolaryngology. But in most of the rest of the country, it's just otolaryngology, which is completely leaving out the nose right? But that's not even the full title. It's actually technically otolaryngology head and neck surgery because we're not just doing everything transorally, transnasal, endoscopically. We're also do, I don't do these things anymore, but we'll do a lot of open neck surgery, Mm -hmm. like laryngectomies and thyroids and submandibular glands and neck masses and clefts and all the things that go along with, with open. So it's not just otolaryngology, Oto, it should be otorhinolaryngology head and neck surgery and i think at this point the the listeners are bored but i'm going to tell them one more one more interesting fact that actually in the i think it was in the early 70s that ophthalmology and otorhinolaryngo, otorhinolaryngology um became two different specialties because up until the early 70s it was all one specialty
1: you are kidding yeah Oh my God, that scares me. Like if my eye doctor that did my LASIK procedure was trying to do my sinus surgery, I would like run for the hills. That is crazy. (laughs) Very funny. So interesting though. So you are an autolaryngologist. Okay, so here's the other thing I want to talk to you about. So you are an entrepreneur. You are a partner in a large ENT practice, right? Yes. Um, But you're also a practicing physician, which means you talk to patients in an office setting, But you also do surgery. So there's this whole other layer. So tell me how you manage your, and I'm just talking about your medical side now, your work schedule from a medical side. We'll talk about the podcast and all the other stuff you do too. But how do you do that? Well, so
2: one, my practice is because we're, so we're, we are the private practice. Um, We are at this point, 250 physicians. (gasps) Wow hundred and seventy or one hundred and seventy seven of whom are partners equal um, share partners so mm-hmm. we we started off the 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 doctors that originally formed the practice they were three offices that I think in the Upper East side of Manhattan and Westchester that got together formed a practice and they decided what they were going to do is when people joined the practice they would join as equal partners now you've got some sweat equity right you don't mm-hmm. come in residency partner you've got a earn your way to partnership. But once you're a partner, you are equal partner. And then we're run by a physician board. So Mm -hmm. I have kind of juggled my practice responsibilities with how much time I've had. Um, So when I was single, I used to go to all the board meetings. I was on a bunch of committees. So we have these committees within the practice that advise the board. The board is elected. Mm -hmm. There are seven board members, one of whom is the president. um, And they're the management arm, but they see patients all day, just like the rest of us. So I'm not managing the practice. Um, recently I started the patient experience committee, um, which, which does what it sounds like it does, because I felt, felt like that was something that was missing from our practice. Um, and we're, we're certainly doing that a whole lot better now. Um, but you can be a, a partner in our practice and just see patients and go home. Wow. So it it is designed in such a way that if you have expertise, if you have an interest, be on a be on a committee, run for the board. But wow. if not, you want to put your head down and see your patients, you can do that too. So it's not that it I have to do these things and you know the operating room schedule it just fits into my clinic schedule. Like it's just rather than seeing patients 5 days a week, I see patients 4 days a week and one day I operate and sometimes I take call. So, uh-huh. you know, it all just kind of fits together, the the podcast, that's the, that's the hard part. Cause I've like, as we talked about before the show, I've, I've three little kids. Um, and so I started this when I had a two year old and a six month old, wow. that's when I put out my first episode, which I'm not sure when this is airing, but my first episode was August 8th, 2018. So now I've been podcasting for five years. Wow. Um, so they there. We have a third one and <laughs> you know, they're all a little older. And I used to, and I podcast after bedtime, but now bedtime's gotten later. And so, you know, juggling all that is, is the challenge. My practice, no problem. That's just, you know, nine to five, whatever, eight to six, you know, whatever the work day is.
1: You make it sound like you're making a sandwich. And it's, it's, I'm fairly confident it's a lot more complicated than that. But, so let me ask you this, why the podcast? So obviously you have a very, you know, Full CV. You went to SUNY. You did your residency at Georgetown. Chief resident. You're a partner in this mega practice. You do surgery. You obviously care a lot about patients. Why start a podcast? You sound like my wife. She's
2: like, isn't it enough? <laughs> you're like a you're a successful physician. Isn't it enough? And right. the thing is, you know, we're we're constantly training. We're constantly trying to be better. And so when I started the podcast, it was my effort to be better at something that I felt like I was lacking in. And -hmm. it may not come across in podcast form because, you know, I take when I'm being interviewed or like when I'm on my show, I take my personality and I turn it up to 11.
0: Mm -hmm. That's
2: not (laughs) who I am. Like, I'm not this animated person. I and I've, you know, I've got some social anxiety, which I didn't realize until I was older that I even Mm -hmm. had. Is wow. part of why I, I had what might someone I'd argue would be like a drinking problem in college. Cause mm-hmm. I just, it just made me nervous. Like I didn't mm-hmm. know how to, how to, how to interact otherwise. And so the, the whole idea about, behind the podcast was to get me better at that doctor patient interaction, get me better so that the patient feels more fulfilled, get me better so that I can move through my schedule more efficiently mm-hmm. and enjoy it more. Mm-hmm. Um, that's when I started it at this point now i'm 12 years into my practice and mm-hmm. it's also the thing that's i like to talk about the most yeah. like Brad how's your day fine you know the pathology that i see is the same pathology that i've been seeing and i'm finding that among my my peers they've been doing this for 10 15 years and it's the same pathology most of the time and it gets you know hedonic adaptation it's mm-hmm. just not as stimulating as it once was. And right. so I find that by podcasting, I'm learning things from my guests that then I can incorporate into my practice. Uh, maybe it's within the exam room. Maybe it's out outside, oh. outside the exam room. So the benefits of the podcast have kind of evolved over time. At at beginning, it was to help me be better. And now it's also to make me, keep me stimulated.
1: Mm-hmm. Wow. So it is something you do for the betterment of yourself, but obviously your guests take away something from it. Your listeners, for sure, take away something from it, but it started from a place where you wanted to be better and keep yourself fresh and excited. That's, I totally get that. So here's a very hard question. Um, We're talking about the business of caring, right? Business implies, you know, some level of success, but let's be real about it. It implies making money, right? So we are all, you know, those of us that are in business for ourselves are, for the most part, driven by success and being able to support our families and hopefully do better for ourselves financially than we would if we were punching a clock for a hospital or an insurer or whatever the thing is. So you carve out this giant chunk of time between... You know, partner, uh, practice, surgery, three kids, wife to do this podcast. Has that podcast led to financial success?
2: No. (laughs) Period. End of sentence. (laughs) No, it's been no. I'm totally in the red from the cost of editing, the cost of you know, where my website is, where the media hosts. And I've hired people to help me try and get my message out there, my voice out there. And I've recently had more advertising, but it certainly isn't, you know, cumulatively, I'm nowhere near being in the, in the black. I am still very, very deeply in the red. Um, If you're measuring it from a financial success alone, Um, but if you were to incorporate the fact that I'm able to move more efficiently through my schedule, get home sooner than I would have without doing the show. Um, You know, that's another measure of success. Mm -hmm. So yes, Mm -hmm. no, I have not created a successful business yet, (laughs) yet, but but I know from talking to another, uh, other entrepreneurs that it's an iterative process. And I will keep at this until I figure out a way to make this successful. And I've got, you know, a couple of other ideas in mind for different ways that I can make that happen. Because one, it's the sunk cost fallacy, which is <laughs> I've already been doing this for five years. So I can't <laughs> stop now. Can't
1: stop now. Right. It.
2: It's a <laughs> cognitive bias and I'm falling in that trap. So so I'm, I'm definitely falling for the sunk cost fallacy. Um, but also I I enjoy it. I yeah, do enjoy it. Sometimes it. I look at my schedule and I'm like, oh, you know what? I really just want to watch the next episode of The Bear with my wife tonight. I really <laughs> want to do that. <laughs>
0: that's a like, fantastic show. Another.
2: It's an amazing show. We <laughs> yeah. I just started watching it. Um, it's my new, we used to be Ted Lasso addicts. Now we're oh, a bear addict. It's a great show uh, too, yeah. So, um, so I, I, you know, I want to do that and I look, I look and I'm like, oh, another interview, but then I will sit down at my desk, get them on the screen and, and I love it. I really enjoy the connections that I make and what I learned from, you know, we were just, I was just interviewing you on the show and I, that's going to help me bring something more to my patients tomorrow. And hopefully, definitely my, my guests, my
1: listeners as well. So you you just define success in different ways, right? So when you do a surgery and your patient does great and doesn't have complications and sings your praises and their X, Y, or Z is cured, that's success. When your practice uh, is financially successful, you know, that's success from a partner standpoint. Your podcast, you've just had, you've redefined success in terms of the podcast and for you it is successful even though it's not attached to dollar signs right
2: yes because if i did attach it to dollar signs then it would be <laughs> an abject failure and uh, <laughs> that doesn't seem it doesn't sound as good that doesn't sit so well so i've had to it, no. redefine it i've had to put a a circular peg in a square hole by changing the definition yes
1: but it seems like you've done it well so but speaking of failure would you be comfortable telling me about a true failure you've had something where you're like, man, that was, whether it was a patient interaction or a business interaction, something where you're like, damn, that was bad.
2: I've got a couple in mind. So one would be, they give out all these doctor, like top doctor awards, right? Like some you have to buy and some (laughs) they aggregate this information somehow. So I'm the guy with the podcast on how to communicate better with your patients, right? And yet somehow I haven't been on one of those lists. Like we have 250 doctors in the practice. I think we have like (laughs) 190 that made the, so the fact that I am not on any of those lists ever is I would regard that as, as a failure. Um, so that's, that's one failure. Yes. The, the, yes, I'm the guy again, who podcasts on doctor patient communication and the better you you communicate with your patients, the more likely they are they to sue you and I've been sued three times. Okay. Um, Twice we're dropped, twice we're dropped, one settled. Um, but still, you know, that those, those are definitely not successes. And then the last failure is, is yeah, is the podcast is that Mm -hmm. like, I see other colleagues that have podcasts and they are, they have a lot more advertising than I do. They're building up their brands. They're pulling in a lot more downloads, a lot more reviews. And I think I'm doing this well. i'm I think I'm doing a good job. And yet the downloads haven't been there to uh, validate that. So, yeah, those are those are a couple failures. But like I said with the podcast, like for me, i've I have decided that it's going to be an iterative process, and I'm going to keep, Changing things until either I run out of ideas, I run out of steam, or it does become a financial success where I can. Because what I want to be able to do is I want to be able to just take a half a day off a week to Mm -hmm. focus on this rather than just hiding in my basement after the kids go to bed and have Mm -hmm. that be the only time that I'm devoting to it.
1: Well, I mean, I think the fact that you verbalized that so well and You know, so funny about the top doctors list, and it it cuts both ways. So when I first started my dream, my entire dream in life was to make this list called mainline today, top Doctors. like, that's all I wanted out of the world. I just wanted to see my name. Right. So I never took seven, eight, nine years. I don't know. Finally made it. I don't know. Felt great. I was never on the cover or anything like that. It's like literally like a snippet, like this big that your mother had to highlight (laughs) for anybody to see what it was, but I was happy. I got it. And then continually made that list for like, I don't know, eight or nine years. Then one time I got the notification like, hey, you made this list. And then the, the issue came out and I wasn't named. So I quickly emailed the editor. I'm like, hey, you said I was on this list. I'm not on this list. And man, they hated me after that. I totally got like blackballed. So I have not made that list since. In like... <laughs> 15 years, which, you know, all that to say, like, it's nonsense. Like those things are so meaningless. I think, you know, I, you know, of course I Google stopped you a little bit. I think you're just what you do, what your patients say about you, how well-spoken you are in these podcast episodes. I mean, that to me is like what really defines success and your ability to say like, there've been some failures and I acknowledge them and here's what they are. I mean, being human about it, I think, is a true measure of success, too. So you, you've you got all of these things that you do, um, but it, you went to med school. You didn't go to med school saying, I'm going to be a partner in a practice, or maybe you did, or I'm going to start a podcast. Why did you go to med school? Certainly not to learn the Krebs cycle. I know that. <laughs> <laughs> you've said that very well. I love that tagline. That's my favorite.
2: I have the worst reason for going to med school. And that is, I didn't know what else to do. Wow. Yeah, I didn't know what else to do. It was more like, well, I don't have any plan for my life (laughs) whatsoever. And you know what I think part of it was, I worked my tail off in high school to get Mm -hmm. into the best college that I could. Mm -hmm. And when I did get into that college, I was you know, kind of burnt out from studying so hard in high school Finally, I was out, wasn't under my parents' thumb anymore. And I just, you know, I wasn't in any, like in high school teams and clubs and edited the newspaper and blah, 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 right. Stacked my resume, honors classes, right. In college, I was just like, I like, I played rugby poorly for two years. Like (laughs) that that was the only thing on my resume. And I didn't have, um, you know, I, I, I really didn't have much going on. And then I, I studied abroad in Israel. Mm-hmm. uh as a junior and that in Jerusalem and that city really you know it's probably one of the one of the most incredible cities in the world and just being there and taking a step away from the rest of my life allowed me to take a step back and say you know what I want to do something with some gravity I want to do something with some importance to it and one of my friends there um uh, was applying to med school so I was mm-hmm. like I'll do that, I'll do that too. Do that too. Wow. Wait,
1: I'm you just happened to have at... all the prereqs done and like, or like, yeah, well, let me just well, take this MCAT.
2: <laughs> well, I was a science major already. I was, it's called the biological basis of behavior, which I has know. a lot of the overlaps with a lot of the uh, prereqs anyway. So I just had to take a couple more classes. So I couldn't take, org, I took Orgo late, so I couldn't apply at the time. So I had to take a year off and uh, while while I was applying. and then And then I ended up getting into one med school off the wait list by the skin of my teeth and the rest was the rest is history. So, okay, not a great, not a great, like I had this calling and (laughs) I always knew I wanted to be a healer. (laughs) No, I just didn't know what else to do.
1: Well, okay. But then (laughs) you went to Georgetown for your residency and you were chief resident, so you must've been doing some, like a lot of things, right? Right. Did you step into
2: your way in med school? Yeah, it it definitely, you know, med school and residency changed me. Mm. Um, I tell my wife, she would have liked me much more pre-residency because, you know, free time wasn't something that we had a lot of, none of us, none of us did. So every moment was valuable. And now I still kind of live my life that way that each moment has to, be. she's like, just take a day, just relax. I'm like, no, I've got stuff to do. I've got this list. Can't we just, can't we just hang around at the house this weekend? No, like on Monday, I want to be able to say, like, this is what we did this weekend, not just hang around the house. And so it it really changed who I am because I was totally fine in high school, ju- I guess junior high school maybe, just sitting around and watching cartoons totally fine like you know i was 13 years old totally fine so you know it it, i think that the training definitely fundamentally changed me, you know, some ways for the better and in some ways for the worse. But yeah, like I it, I got this fire under my butt to, you know, I wanted to go into otolaryngology, which I knew was competitive. And so I needed to do, I needed to make sure that my grades were good. I needed to do research. I And so, you know, sometimes when my other, when my friends were, were hanging out, like I was in the hospital doing things that I needed to do. And that but then, you know, in residency, I wasn't at the top of my class or anything. Yeah, I was the chief resident, but like, you know, I didn't do some fancy fellowship or anything like that. Yes, Georgetown's competitive. And thank goodness, you know, I I got into that. I'm I'm super grateful that that I did, but I'm not like their 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 star their pupil like they've got people that end up being chairs of departments and you know groundbreaking research and i'm just some schmo community otolaryngologist who does septoplasties and tonsillectomies all the time which are very like routine and and mundane and i am and i am i am fine with that i am good at that um but i'm certainly not like the the crown jewel of my residency program
1: Brad, you seem you have so much humility for, that does not line up with your resume. I mean, that's just how I'm going to say it. you're,
2: <laughs> is this a coaching session? Are you turning this into a, like,
1: <laughs> i listen, I'm going to mother you first. We'll yeah. <laughs> no, I love that. You are so humble about all of those things, but how important do you think that is, um, uh, to being a good doctor, how important would you say humility is? Because I think we're all, we all know how detrimental hubris is. And, you know, our profession has that in spades. I very rarely meet truly humble doctors. Uh, You, my husband, who's a pediatrician, who's like the lowliest of the egos in the doctor scale. uh, Do you think that has served you well? Or do you, do you think it's a personality flaw?
2: a a bit of both, a bit of both. Mm -hmm. I think in, um, you know, if any of my, if any of my patients are listening, um, I only do surgeries that I'm super comfortable doing. Right. And so I'm not doing open neck surgery anymore. And, and I think this humility was maybe a, a problem in my, in my residency training, because I was, more likely to hand over the instruments to the other, to the, to the attending and be like, listen, I'm not, I'm not comfortable with this or more apt to let that happen. And so then I ended up doing maybe fewer of them than I could have done. And then graduated would have with more confidence or if I had more confidence to begin with, I'm not sure where, you know, the the chicken and the egg is, but yes, Mm -hmm. I think to some degree it is, it is to my detriment. Um, but in other ways it's, it's to my credit, I think, because it allows me to, um, try and improve myself in, in all of these different ways. But yes, it's at the same time, it's never enough. right? right. When, is it, yeah. when is it's finding that balance of when it's, when it's enough. Um, and I think having my wife as my wife also helps because she's a hey. big cheerleader for me and she's, um, you know, we're, we complement each other very well.
1: Well, you know, I spend a lot of time talking to patients who go see these rock star doctors. You know, they fly to X, Y, or Z doctor. And you're right outside Manhattan. So you have those guys that are probably your neighbors and things. And they're supposedly going to give them the best care. But they can't get through the office visit because of the size of some of these doctors' egos. So I think before you can do a septoplasty on someone, you got to be able to have a conversation with them you have to earn their trust right so it seems to me like you have a good balance from you know the 37 minutes i've been talking to you about <laughs> um
2: i, well, I, I think that's also the the gen, there there's there's a generational shift that's happening mm, and i think true. the older doctors are from the paternal age of medicine where this is what i say and this is this is how it goes and i think the younger doctors are being trained in the importance of the the connection the communication and the art of that and the science of that uh, i think are coming out more in training you know when i when i started the podcast as you said my the tagline is everything we should have been learning while we were memorizing krebs cycle and what i'm finding when i when i teach sometimes at the med school near me is a lot of the stuff that I originally included in my lecture, um, I had to take out because wow. they are teaching it in wow. med school. There are things that, that it, it is evolving. It's like turning a giant ship, but it does eventually start to turn, hopefully not too little and not too late. But there, there are things about this that, that are being communicated. And I think that, you know, you don't go into medicine expecting that. Any expecting to, to be there. And if I might say, I think they are also more likely those older doctors were more likely to stay in the hospital longer. They were more likely when they're retiring to stay in the doctor's lounge, even after they've retired. And like <laughs> that's all they had, <laughs> but right. They, they, that's their whole identity. And yeah. I think the younger doctors aren't going to do that and i think it's because it's more taxing for us because when you can just tell someone how it's going to be and go home sleeping at night no thinking that you did a good job and they were wrong for just not listening to you i think for us it's the visits become more emotionally taxing when you don't have that paternal relationship um and you you're you feel like you're really more in there with the patient and you're trying to navigate their anxiety and you're trying to navigate their psychosocial situation, each visit becomes a little more taxing that way. And it becomes, becomes harder, becomes more draining.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And then you're, you know, counting the days until you can retire. (laughs) That's, that's no way to end a illustrious career. Right. Yeah. Um, I want to ask you about a very specific thing, just because i'm I, I'm dying to hear your opinion on this. So you're you're a surgeon, you do surgery, and you're obviously, you know, modern. you have a podcast, you know you're working on the patient experience and all that. What do you think about the plastic surgeon who streamed her surgeries on TikTok? and follow-up question to that. Do you think there is a place for, you know, physicians who utilize social media to their professional gain? Do you think it's okay or do you think that we've kind of gone overboard? So, one, I
2: am not a millennial. I am Generation X. So, I don't know that situation
1: oh oh my god yeah, yeah. i can't believe that I mean, i'll I have to I, tell you about it
2: i might have read like a little bit about it heard a little bit about it but i think ultimately she did what she ended up losing her license or something because exactly she a
1: surgery yeah that's the whole story yep so she strained so her surgery and lost her license
2: yeah i mean i think if you are if the patient has full consent it offers full, like maybe you're doing it for promotional reasons and the patient's like getting something cosmetic and you'll say listen i'll waive the fee if you agree to x y and z this is where it's going to go this is how big my reach is like it's all full disclosure I, I think it's reasonable as long as the patient's fully aware of what's going on but mm-hmm. you can't like do it and because you you like block out their tattoos or whatever mole <laughs> they have like just assume it's going to be anonymous i i think they're they're aligned and also yes there are we are held to a, a higher standard right uh, your presence on social media you need to behave as if your patients are watching your every move and assume that they are now again it's a different generation there are doctors with purple hair there are doctors <laughs> with tattoos there are doc- like sleeve tattoos and that is totally fine like i think Patients with sleeve tattoos are gonna to gravitate towards doctors with sleeve tattoos. Like that's, we we, we need that, we need, we need um, diversity of age, we need diversity of ethnicity, we need diversity of background, of cultural, we need all of that to better serve our patients, right? And so I think this, this old definition of professionalism needs to die. However, however, we still need to behave as if Our patients are watching us and there are, are some physicians that are on social media that, I mean, it doesn't, it just, to me, it doesn't pass the smell test because they're Mm -hmm. they're so (laughs) crude and they're, and, 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 and and you can't demean the patients. That's a line that should never be crossed. Like I'm sure you know who Dr. Glocken Flecken is, uh, the ophthalmologist, he is a genius at always punching up. So mm-hmm. if you're gonna if you're gonna try and make a joke, never, never, ever punch down. He is always That's punching right. up, and he's hilarious, and he's so good. And it's easy to punch down. It's easy to right. make a, make a joke and punch down. And so I think when you're posting on social media, you need to keep that in mind as well, and hold yourself to a high standard that you would be fine with, like your first grade teacher seeing. Like this is what <laughs> I've become. Yes, I'm so glad that she, that Mrs. McCabe, my first, who was my first grade teacher, I'm, sorry, I'm sure. But um, you know would be proud to, you know, see that this is, and and I think you should really think that way when you're posting online, but like, you know, this person who put her patient, like, yeah, that's, that's why I think it's, it's, it's not okay.
1: Yeah. 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 And as a surgeon too, I mean, what if something goes wrong and you've got like, you're live streaming and this guy, some, somebody's arteries, like gushing all over, like, what the heck do you do with, I can't even imagine that. So no, you're right. Like we definitely do need to hold ourselves to a higher standard because I, I still, after all these years take so much pride in my profession. I, I, I never cringe when people ask me what I do for a living or when I run into my patients, you know, outside of the office, i I'm proud of that. I'm proud of the service that I get to do uh, for my community. I consider it a privilege and you so, sorry,
2: uh, and you had asked about being on social media. so I just yeah. want to mention like we should be on social media for a bunch of reasons. One is it's mm-hmm. a great marketing tool for patients to find you and for referring providers to find you. You know, it's another tool if you want to pivot to, in another way and be some type of like authority in your in your field um and the other is, There is so much misinformation out there. Mm, There is disinformation and misinformation, intentional and unintentional, incorrect information that's out there. And the only way to combat it is with more information coming from us, coming from physicians, health information coming from physicians. We are the authority. And if we're not out there giving correct information, then we're going to get drowned out by... Um, by the misinformation, and nonsense,
1: by the which nonsense, which yeah. is
2: already happening, and it's mm-hmm. a battle that we're already losing. But it doesn't mean you shouldn't, you know, put your gloves on and get into the fight and do what you can about getting good information out there for your patients, for your public. So I think it's in. It's an, If you're listening, if you're not interested, you're not interested. But should
1: we be on social media? Yes. I love that, and so that was an excellent segue to I have. Two final questions for you. The first is COVID. Did you come out of COVID a better doctor, a saltier doctor, a more tired doctor? How do you think the whole COVID situation affected your practice as a doctor?
2: We're definitely busier. (laughs) <laughs> uh, we're definitely busier because I think it, it took a lot of the, the doctors that were on the brink of retirement and pushed them into retirement.
0: Yeah, And so then mm-hmm. the
2: the rate of retirement outpaced the new physicians in the area. So we're, we're, mm. we're definitely busier. Um, the COVID experience, I think definitely. Yeah. Saltier because of the whole disinformation and misinformation. Yep. Right. Mm-hmm. The fact that like people were like healthcare workers. Yay. Will I get vaccinated. No, no, um, you know, the, the, all that, all that distrust of of physicians and and the villainizing of people that were just trying to do their best um with the information they had but i think another thing is we've gotten smarter about it i think we're Mm -hmm. um you know those in the government those in public health those in science communication are learning from that experience so that we can get better at communicating the next time around and hopefully we'll be better at, yeah, at, at combating the misinformation and the, and the disinformation, you know, the disingenuous, incorrect information.
1: Right. I mean, I think the more doctors like you that are out there reestablishing people's faith in the healthcare profession the less likely we are to have to be in that position to battle the nonsense, I think we just have to reestablish ourselves as authorities by being respectable and having our patients trust us again.
2: Exactly, it's one patient at a time. <laughs> exactly. Like if you, if all of us are just, you know, connecting better with that one patient at a time, they're going to trust us more. So that you don't have to get into this. You know, I, I had like five episodes with science communicators on how to convince your patients to get vaccinated. Oh, and wow. It became, it became too much. Like the, <laughs> the, just the amount of the number of times that I tried to engage with people and like the, do this little dance where I'm kind of bobbing and weaving of, around what they're saying, what I'm saying. Um, it, it, it became taxing and th- you know, that's one way that I became saltier, but at the same time better.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, thankfully it's a once in a lifetime event, hopefully, but yeah, I mean, I think all of us that are still practicing came out of it a little hardened, but honestly, better in some ways too. Yes. Um. So I, this is what I want to close with. You have three sons. I have three kids too. Would you, if your sons came to you and said, dad, you know, we, we want to be doctors. Would you be, would that make you happy or would you try to talk them out of it? And whichever the answer is why
2: so my sister-in-law my brother's wife is is a physician as well and she she has a good way of putting it if the if you can't think of anything else that would make you happy then go ahead but i would definitely be also coaching them in the background about all the different lessons related to medicine, like the entrepreneurial aspects that put you in a position that you are not beholden to the Mm -hmm. health system that you're in. Like that's one thing that I've learned from all of the physicians online that are like financially independent or at least financially savvy is they've all put themselves or at least are moving towards positions where they're not beholden to this healthcare system because as physicians, we are often management material in a labor position. <laughs> and so excellent you know, we are, you know, we were at the top of our class and, and like in any other industry, we would be in management positions, but in this industry, we are not. We're high earners, but we just see patients. We're doing over the grunt work. and over, and over. exactly.
0: Mm-hmm. And so,
2: you know, I would want them to, you know, have their eyes open into all the different ways in which things are happening around them so that they aren't stuck in the labor position indefinitely.
1: Great answer. So it's not like, oh, medicine is the best. I would definitely be a doctor or don't ever be a doctor. It's the worst thing ever. There's qualifications.
2: (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, I think hedonic adaptation sets in everywhere, and so there needs to be a way to continuing to evolve in your professional life so that it keeps it stimulating.
1: Great, beautiful answer, Brad. So, if as a physician entrepreneur, podcaster, uh, all of the things you do, if you could leave our listeners, specifically doctors, considering a private practice or thinking about branching out on their own you were going to leave them with one piece of advice, what would it be?
2: Getting back to what you said earlier is you have to think about how you're you're defining success for you in this moment. How Mm -hmm. do you define success? Is it financial success? Is that how you're looked upon by your peers is it how you're looked upon by your family is it like is it how you think about yourself in what regard like what is your measure of success right now so make sure that whatever you're doing is in line with your definition of success or at least you're working towards whatever definition that is um and also recognize that that will evolve over time so once you're if you do go into private practice once you're established check in with yourself and see again how are you defining success now and how are you working towards that goal i know it's very nebulous and out there wow, it's excellent but, advice um you know that goal post is gonna is gonna move and so make sure that you you recognize that you are moving it when you're moving it and, but first, you know, establish where you want that goalpost to be so you can work towards it.
1: Yeah. Perfect advice. If you don't know where you want to be you never know how to get there. So I I think that's excellent. Thank you so much. I was such a pleasure. Um, Everyone listening. My guest was Dr. Bradley block an esteemed auto laryngologist in New York. Uh, Well, TV a mile long. Most interesting to me is uh Dr. Block's podcast, a Physician's Guide to Doctoring. Please check it out for some really insightful interviews with other physicians. Brad, I appreciate you so much. I hope I can talk to you again.
0: Me too. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for listening to the business of caring with Dr. Christine Meyer. Have you learned a lot by running your own business as a doctor or healthcare care provider? Perhaps you're a physician, entrepreneur in training, or someone who has aspirations to own their own business in patient care. We want to hear from you. Join us as a guest on our show. If you'd like more information on today's episode or how to contact Dr. Meyer, visit us online at christinemeyermd.com or send us an email at christine at christinemeyermd.com.